You may have heard, but Sesame Street is debuting its first autistic character, Julia. Good timing because April is also Autism Awareness Month. As one reporter from a Staten Island news outlet wrote, producers of Sesame Street said they took a lot of care in how they portrayed Julia. They worked with autism advocates, teachers, and parents of kids on the spectrum to learn about the ways autism presents. From that, they created this character who they say represents one child with autism, not a general description of autism. Close quote. How is autism normally portrayed? And is it done in a way that exacerbates misconceptions or misperceptions? We met up with Christina Brando-Subis, a doctoral student whose research shows how current award-winning literature portrays autism and what the outcomes of that portrayal may currently be. Education Eclipse starts now. Education, news, and research. These are the conversations happening inside education, athletic training, sports science, and sport management that are going to transform each. It's Education Eclipse from Washington State University. Back here on Education Eclipse, and I'm joined by Christina Brandosubis, who's a doctoral student in our Language Literacy and Technology program. And uh, first of all, Christina, thank you for joining me on the podcast. Thanks for having me. All right, so you're doing a study that I think it sounds pretty interesting. It's I don't know what DSM five is, but you're gonna you're gonna explain that to me. DSM five autism spectrum disorder symptomology in award winning narrative fiction. So essentially, how is the fiction showing autism spectrum disorder, specifically DSM five? I'm guessing. Yes, DSM five is uh, how they actually diagnose children with autism. So they look at different criteria and see what is presenting or not presenting in the child. And so we matched up the DSM-5 criteria, which breaks it by down by social communication and interaction deficits, and then restricted repetitive uh, patterns of behavior, interests, or activities. So there's about seven different areas that um, can present in autism. And so we coded nine award-winning narrative fiction texts for young adults um, based on the diagnostic criteria on the DSM-5. So you didn't just go for any old text. I mean, you went award-winning. There's a there's a chance that they're more widely read, so on and so forth. Uh, it totally makes sense, and it makes sense based on what you are studying. I see Catherine Smith and Sayun Lee, um, both grad students, both uh, doctoral students. Um, and then I see Jane Kelly, who, of course, is a, a, a professor of our LLT. And, and then I see Brenda Barrio. I think this makes sense. Brenda's in our special education program. Yes, and Teresa is also in a special education program at Utah Valley University. Um, I did see that, and I'll just point out that the Cougs swept Utah Valley University in a four-game series this year in baseball, so just throw that out there. Um, but you, you brought in an, an external person as well. Yes, and so we worked on consensus coding, we called it. So we were all responsible for different texts that we looked for those different symptoms to present themselves. And then we got together with all six of us to come to a consensus on, on what parts of the text actually represented what code from the DSM-5. So making this real, I mean, what are we really talking here? We're talking notions that we might have, maybe preconceived notions of, of something based on, based on what we read? Yes, so we like to use narrative fiction to teach students about people and characters that may be different than them. And so we looked at these books, which you're right, award-winning means that they are more widely recognized and supposed to be, you know, the best of their bunch. Um, and so we use these books to teach about 
different people. So in this case, it's focusing on autism. And what are the books portraying students with autism as, as showing? And so we found that they were really heavy on the behavioral parts of the disorder um, rather than the social communication deficits that might present themselves. Give me an example of a behavioral versus the social communication or the interaction type thing. So, especially in these books, the behavior part is you might have a student that has a really intense interest in something, like they can tell you the weather for five different states every single day, or they might really like cars or trains or be interested in numbers, and that's more of a behavior. Um, versus social communication is how we talk to each other in different social situations, recognizing nonverbal um, communication, like if someone's rolling their eyes, what does that mean? Um, and social context could be not just person to person, but also how do you act in a conference when you're presenting? How do you act in a video store? What do you do when you're filling out a resume? One character in the books uh, used her pet gerbil as a reference on her resume, and that's a type of, of deficit in social um, understanding, so maintaining and, and knowing um, how to be appropriate and what's expected for a certain social context. So basically, if somebody knew the weather in five states, right, that would be that, that behavioral, but how they explained it to people or, or didn't explain it or, or whatever could be the uh, social and interaction. Yes, and sometimes we had what was called double codes, where you did, you had something that was more of a behavior, but it was presented in a social context as well. Um, and so we did double codes where we might have had um, an S code for that social communication and an R code for that repetitive type of behavior as well. Did you find that the literature displayed these two different types of criteria evenly, or was it weighted toward one or the other? Yes, it's very heavily weighted to the behavior aspect of the DSM-5. So it was 72% of behaviors, um, and we ended up coding 285 symptoms we found throughout the nine books, and 28% was the social communication and interaction deficits. What's the outcome, I guess, for the reader in, I guess, forming their ideas? We hope that authors and publishers and educators will be critical consumers of what they're reading and publishing and try to represent, um, especially when you're trying to learn about something uh, very diverse like autism, more of an equitable representation between the two symptoms. And so just remembering that there is a social communication and interaction side to this disability and being able to more um, evenly portray that. So we want to see those that 72-28 kind of get a little closer together uh, to be more equitably representable of, of autism. You know, I don't know, is this study done? Would you consider, I mean, is peer-reviewed journal yet? We are in uh, review right now with journals. Okay, so when that's done and you have, it's peer-reviewed, then what? I mean, do you, you know, dear publisher, like here's something you really needed to pay attention to. I mean, how do you get it to them? Well, we hope that they'll be wide readers themselves, um, but a lot of it is about networking at conferences like this. Um, you could certainly send it on to publishers and say, you know, we wrote this really great article. Um, this is a recommendation that we have for you as you look at publishing more books about um, characters with autism. Um, Dr. Kelly and Dr. Cardin actually did a study uh, first um, in children's books and how they were represented, um, picture books, so for a younger audience and how they were represented that as well. So this is kind of an extension we looked at, decided to do the chapter book side of, of this. So yeah, we're just urging publishers and authors to kind of think about all aspects of um, a disability if they're going to portray that in their books. Right, and I think this is great, and maybe we can avoid perpetuating any kind of misconceptions about uh, autism spectrum disorder. But uh, Christina, this is great. Uh, I, I really like that this is a collaborative effort between 
LLT and, and special ed, and, and even between universities, reaching out to the, uh, the, what is it, the Wildcats, the Utah Valley University, something or other. So good job. Um, thank you so much for joining me on the podcast. Thanks for having me. You've been listening to Education Eclipse, a College of Education podcast from Washington State University. 